We pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Reports of his cousin's work had reached John the Baptist in prison, and he sent a question by way of his disciples. Are you the one coming, or should we expect another? Our text this morning from Matthew chapter 11 is filled with expectations, both right and wrong, stated and unstated. After John's disciples leave, Jesus asks a series of questions to clarify the expectations concerning him. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? The implied answer is no. Unlike a reed shaken by the wind, John stood against the winds of public opinion, even common sense. John had spoken openly against the adultery of King Herod Agrippa with his brother's wife Herodias. With that in the background, there is a touch of irony to the second question. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. Now John's clothing was coarse, camel's hair and a leather belt, but he was in a king's house, his summer palace near the Dead Sea. Only John was downstairs in the dungeon awaiting his executioner. Finally, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. You got it right, more than you know. He is the coming Elijah, the one sent to prepare the way for Yahweh himself, as promised by an earlier prophet, the prophet Malachi. But the prophet John himself has expectations as well. Hence the question, are you the one coming or should we expect another? What do we do with this question? Many have assailed John for his lack of faith. How could the one who stood in the Jordan when the heaven opened and the dove descended ask such a question? How could the one who later proclaimed, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world now sound so uncertain? Could this really be the greatest of those born of women? Exegetes and commentators have executed elaborate gyrations to explain John's motive here. He was asking for the benefit of his disciples, or he was really calling in the cavalry, hoping for a legion of angels. Now, I'm not sure if you are buying any of those explanations, but I offer you this one, that John was in fact expressing his faith, his absolute certainty regarding the promises of God. This makes Jesus' answer so beautiful. He gives the promise of God right back to John. Go and tell John what you see and hear. And then Jesus quotes Isaiah chapters 35 and 61. The eyes of the blind are open. The ears of the deaf are unstopped. The lame leap like a deer. The tongue of the mute shout for joy and the poor have good news preached to them. All this has happened, is happening, and even more, the dead are raised up. But here's the rub, the aching problem that throbbed in John's heart. 
John knew that he wasn't telling the whole promise from Isaiah. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, the blind, the deaf, absolutely. But what about verse 4? Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Isaiah 61, the first part of verse 1, the good news to the poor, yes. But what about the rest of the verse, the proclamation of liberty to the captives and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound. John is certainly thinking that he could use some of that right about now. This is what David Schmidt refers to as the terror of the text. Jesus comes, but he doesn't release John from prison. This prophet who comes and prophesies to the world-encompassing reign of God ends up upon in a territorial game of a political tyrant, and his head becomes a party favor on a platter. And this is not just a terror for John, it is a terror for you as well. It is a terror because it means the reign of heaven is not the American dream. It means that sometimes your expectations, your prayers in this life will not be answered. It means that the financial insecurity we felt may not be alleviated by that new job offer. It means that the struggle for faith of our loved ones who have wandered may not be resolved and reconciliation grows distant. It means that the healing we prayed for in pre-op may not be realized in the recovery room or even in this life. We come with our prayers in hand and Matthew this morning cautions us about our expectations. Father Alfred Delp looked to the Christ through the bars of his prison in Berlin in 1944. On a cold December day, he wrote, God has now put me in a place where I can't get out. And whatever I've undertaken has failed. One door after another has been closed. Even the ones I thought were open for good. No help has come from the outside and probably couldn't anyway. About what happens inside, it's better to be silent. So here I've been put now, handcuffed and locked in a narrow cell. There are only two ways out. One is through the gallows, into the light of God, and the other is through a miracle and into a new mission. God's answer was the gallows. Father Delp and the baptizer both lived a part of the Advent message. Christ has come. Christ is coming. John had proclaimed him to be the Lamb of God. John had been his forerunner in life and would soon be his forerunner in death. Now and not yet, the bittersweet reality of Advent, the reign of heaven has come. The reign of heaven is coming. It forces us to reassess our expectations of the season. Christ's gospel is not a Christmas carol gospel. It doesn't come with bright bows and ribbons. It doesn't come with minstrels and fanfare. It comes in the form of a cross. His is a cruciform gospel. 
and as theologians of the cross, we are accustomed to calling it like it is. Peter Navsker observes, we may not be comfortable with God's ways, but we are familiar with them. We do worship a God who died after all. No matter how much good might come from his death, in the end, on Good Friday, there was no way to spin it. As Jesus foretold in verse 12, the violence of the world would take him by force, and it still does. Like the disciples who found themselves alone, afraid, and hiding, we continue to grope around in the dark, struggling to make sense of what seems like a backwards way of reigning over heaven and earth." End quote. We come with our prayers in our hands, our expectations, and we place them at the foot of the cross, already foreshadowed in a manger. What does this say about God's expectations? After all, we talked about the crowd's expectations and John's expectation and our own, but what about God? On the sixth day of creation, we read, let us make man in our image after our likeness. This was God's expectation that we should be stewards of his creation, image bearers of our creator to his glory. But the lives of our first parents, our lives stand in sharp contrast. We know the story, we live the story of sin. Despite the programs and promises, covenants and convocations, we daily stand in need of forgiveness. Reflect for a moment on the confession that we made earlier this morning. Heed the unspoken accusation of those you hurt this past week. Consider well your failure to meet your own expectations, let alone those of your Creator. Realize that sin is more than what we do and don't do. It is who we are. The holy and the unholy, the reality of God and the no longer image of God cannot coexist. The unholy, you and I cannot change what we are. Now, we can certainly make progress in Christian living. Destructive behaviors can be set aside and new habits developed. Relationships can be reconciled through forgiveness and conversation along with an extra helping of pride swallowing. For these, we rejoice and take encouragement, but these will not restore the image of Eden. We cannot climb up to God if we are to be saved, God must come down to us. In his novel, The Hammer of God, Bo Geertz creates an arresting allegory for the necessity of God coming down to us in Christ. The plot presents three snapshots of a rural parish in Odessa, Sweden. The middle novella, which is set in the years 1878 to 1880, opens with the rheumatic rector awaiting his new curate. He is uncomfortable with the necessity of having an assistant, but his health gives him no choice. He wonders what kind of man the cathedral chapter would send him. They had sent him a drove of good-for-nothing young oxen to fool around in his fields these four years, he reflects as he waits. 
after dinner during the first, or in the bitter cold of night, three days before Christmas, when Pastor Friedfeld arrives, kicking his heavy boots against the stone steps, half frozen to death. The rector chatters on as his things are brought in and waffles the special company treat at the parsonage were soon on the table. After dinner, during the first real opportunity to speak, the young man eagerly assures the rector that he is a believer, that he has given his heart to Jesus. The old rector thoughtfully replies, it is one thing to choose Jesus as one's Lord and Savior, to give him one's heart and commit oneself to him, and that he now accepts one into his little flock. It is a very different thing to believe in him as a redeemer of sinners, of whom one is chief. One does not choose a redeemer for oneself, you understand, nor give one's heart to him. The heart is a rusty old can on a junk heap, a fine birthday gift indeed. But a wonderful Lord passes by and has mercy on the wretched tin can, sticks his walking cane through it, and rescues it from the junk pile, and takes it home with him. This is how it is." End quote. A wonderful Lord who snatched us from the junk heap. This is the one to whom John sent his disciples, asking, are you the one coming, or should we expect another? We need to hear again Jesus' answer from the prophet Isaiah, the promises of God fulfilled, the blind see, the lame walk, the dead are raised. It is the inauguration of the reign of heaven, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me, by Jesus, who would hang on a cross, who fulfills the Father's expectation to redeem the world. The answer of the cross restores the image of God shattered by our sin. The cross declares, you are my child. Now we can stand in the presence of God, washed in the water and word of baptism, fed with the body and blood of a savior again this morning. You are forgiven. Christians can and need expectations for their lives, for their living as Christians. But expectations are not the gospel. They are not the entrance to the reign of heaven. The gospel is at its core news, news that comes to us, news that announces what has been done for us on our behalf, done because we could not do it ourselves, for ourselves or for each other. But the gospel received provokes a response that gives rise to expectation. Philip Doddridge wrote what will be our closing hymn today, Hark the Glad Sound. In his 28 years as a pastor, he wrote some 400 hymn texts, generally to accompany his sermon. In that spirit, I would like to preview one phrase from the second stanza where we will sing about our bondage to sin and Satan. Yet with the coming of Christ, the gates of brass before him burst and the iron fetters yield. These are our expectations going forward, that the bondage of sin is over, the iron fetter yield. Not 
necessarily. Not in every instance will we shed the shackles of sin to do what is right and pleasing to God. But the guilt, the judgment of sin is gone. We walk as the redeemed. The separation, the reality of original sin drops away. It is left on the junk pile while you and I, the once rusty tin cans, are carried home. Or, as the prophet Isaiah puts it in our Old Testament reading this morning, the ransomed of Yahweh will return. They will come to Zion with shouts, everlasting gladness on their hearts. Joy and gladness will overtake them. Sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is our confidence, our expectation. Amen.